So, we're in a series called Encounters with Christ, Encounters with Jesus. And these are usually individual encounters. In this case, he says he's a mob, but a legion. Uh, What we're exploring is how Jesus comes to meet people individually and kind of how he steps into their life. Last week, we saw Jesus in a boat with the disciples and there was a storm that came up. He was asleep in the back and they said, master, master, we're all gonna drown. Like you better wake up. And Jesus stands up and he calms the storm, the sea and the wind. Immediately there comes peace. And then he turns to his disciples and said, why do you have so little faith? Like I have authority, he doesn't say this, but it's apparent he has authority over the wind and over the sea. And one of the things that Richard taught about last week is that Jesus is revealing that we don't live in a closed system. Like, it's everything is not cause and effect. There's kind of an exterior force in the world. In today's passage, we're seeing that within us, Jesus can calm the storms within us, and that there's even an interior battle with good and evil. And this is, I think, a particularly tricky passage because that uh, spirituality and evil and mental health and mental illness, they seem to be kind of described in in a way that's very difficult for us to discern which is which. So as we get started, I wanna say that In this system that we live in, this open system where God can intervene, we still use the tools available for us. If you're going sailing, I hope you take a compass because that's gonna help you get where you're going. Most sailboats come equipped with a compass, some with even GPS. If you are going through a mental health challenge, I hope that you seek medical help, that you seek a counselor, that you find yourself able to tell someone who cares about you, hey, I'm really struggling. I myself went through a time of depression and there was a friend as well as a counselor who met with me just to hear what it was like to go through that season. So you are not alone. You do not need to live as if it were a closed system. It's not all up to you. What we're gonna look at in this passage today is how Jesus adds his spiritual power and authority to help free this man. So I think it's kind of a both and. And I just wanna, as we get started, make sure that we put that out there. Jesus wants to encounter you today. And Jesus also wants to speak to you and provide healing through every kind of medicine that's available that's gonna help your circumstance. So if you get stirred up today and think, you know, I I think I need this kind of help, uh, please pursue both prayer and, and pursue the kind of medical and community help that would be a support to you. So we're gonna look at the story of a man who was very isolated and then we're gonna see how God brought him home to himself and to God. So let's join our hearts in prayer. Gracious God, I thank you that your word opens up to us all sorts of possibilities of the way that you long to heal us and to free us. Lord God, I pray that for each one gathered in the sanctuary or watching online, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that we would actually encounter you today, that this wouldn't just be church as usual, but that through this peculiar passage, uh, you would open up new truths 
to us, that you would send your spirit to be more present to us, that your perfect love would cast out our fears, Lord, that we would trust you more for having been together today. So come, Lord Jesus, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts not only be acceptable, but be life-changing. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start out by telling you about an adventure that I went on, and it was an adventure in a taxi cab in New York City. I was there with a few friends, and we had this amazing trip. We had some uh, spiritual time. We went to this conference, and then one of my friends worked for Nordstrom, and we got to meet a shoe designer, person to person. I love shoes, so that was a real high point. And then kind of near the end of our trip, to cap it all off, we went to the musical Wicked, which is a takeoff on The Wizard of Oz. And after uh, the musical, we got back into uh, into a taxi cab, and we were chatting really about good and evil and about kind of is this evil, is there evil woven in our world or do we just not have eyes to see it? We're having this really kind of profound conversation and the cab driver who was um, evidently a Muslim, he was dressed in that way and he had yet a cross hanging from his rearview mirror. So it's like, okay, you know, do many people use the cab or drive the cab or what does he believe? He chimes up which is kind of unusual. Sometimes a cab driver talks, sometimes they're very quiet. He chimed up and said, do you believe in good and evil? And we look, kind of looked at each other and like said, yes, we do. And he said, well, do you believe that there can be circumstances where evil wins? And we were like, uh, it can feel like evil wins, but in the end, we believe God wins out. And he said, well, I'm in one of those situations. And right about then, we had just pulled up to the curb. And my friends like hopped out of the car as the cab driver said, well, would you pray for me? And it's like, well, Kendi, you're the pastor. Just go ahead and pray for the cab driver. And what he wanted prayer for was his living situation. He said, I'm living in a place. Now, by the way, I did pause to wonder if I should be paying the meter while I was praying or if I should pay him first and then pray. Like, was this on his time or my time? Uh, you know, you want to shorten the prayer up if, you're, if the meter's ready. No. So he said he wanted prayer. I do think I paid him first. He said, I want a prayer for my living situation. I live in a place that feels evil. There are drug deals going on, maybe even sex trafficking or human trafficking. He said it's very loud. People are, they, they act like there's no one around. Like they, they don't realize that there's other people. And he said, I drive taxi in the night, and so a lot of times this is in the day, and I can't sleep at all. So I said, I'd be happy to pray for you, and I prayed for him, and, and he said, would you come like to my place and pray for the, the apartment? And I said, no, I really, I really wasn't comfortable uh, going to his place, but could he write down the address? And I would, I would pray for that address, and I would pray for him. So he got a slip of paper, and he wrote that out, and I put it in my kind of devotional book, and I, that I prayed for him for about a week. And then I got to thinking, like, how's this story going to end? Like, do I just keep praying for this random cab driver in New York, and I'll never know if it's working, and he'll never know I'm praying for him? And so I thought, 
you know what I should really do, and I consulted my friends, is I think I should go ahead and call him and just let him know that I've been praying for him. And like, I'm still praying for him as I'm talking to you, but like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be daily obsessed with this situation that he's in. Like, he needs some community around him. So I call the number, and it turns out to be essentially a pay phone in this apartment building. And that kind of also tells you, it was, we all, I had a cell phone, but this was the circumstance in which he lived. Like, he, there was one pay phone for the whole place. So somebody answered the phone, and I described who I was looking for and his name, and I could hear all this, like, loud kind of yelling and banging of doors and like, I, I'm not going to go find him. And I just said, you know, if you could, it would be great. Just see if he's home. And he, he was, he came to the phone and I said, how are you? And he's like, the same. I said, so things aren't getting any better. He said, no, things aren't really getting any better, but I can tell you this. I now have hope that good might prevail. And we talked a little bit actually about his possibly changing his living situation and getting himself to a position where he could be in a safer environment. So this story, for me, was one of the few times where I actually felt that perhaps what the person was describing was evil. It was against God's will that this man would live in a situation and probably that everybody in that building would be caught up in a lifestyle that, that was so opposite of good health, that was so threatening to each of them and so isolating for him. So as we step into this story, we're stepping into an understanding, not, not of a closed system that says it just is what it is, but of an open system that says, actually, if we open up our circumstances, God wants to intervene. God wants to bring something from outside of ourselves, as he does in this story. So as we step into the story, we won't solve all the mysteries of the relationship between spirituality and mental health. But we will step into a story of contrasts in which we see that Jesus, first of all, meets each one of us. He meets each person and he puts his attention on this man. And then secondly, he sets this man and he sets us free. We're, we're not captive to this inner system. And then he sends us, he sends us all out, and in some way I wonder if he sends us all home, as he does with this man. So let's review this passage. This is a pathetic figure of a man. It, this, past, this story is told in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Mark's Gospel, he includes the specifics that it was night and day that the man is roving through the graves and hills, that he's screaming out and slashing himself with sharp stones. The message puts it this way, no one could tame him. He couldn't be tied down. He had been tied up many times with chains and ropes, but he broke the chains. He snapped the ropes. This man was a danger both to himself and possibly to others. He hadn't worn clothes or lived at home for a long time. He didn't even live in an enclosed space. He lived in a cemetery. He lived among the dead, if you will. He couldn't be kept safe. Today, if, if you're struggling with this kind of mental illness, you would often uh, 
feel there's no place to go. And the place where a lot of people go is the emergency room. We hope that as Bethany, we're stepping into this problem of homelessness by providing shelter, usually for 10 to 12 women, more than half the week. I think you heard the announcement earlier today about that. We may feel that there's nothing we can do. We, we can't solve the global problem. When we're driving down the freeway and I see the camps that are set up, I think there's nothing I can do. It's, it's a whole system that's so much bigger than me, which it is. But God wants to use each one of us to be salt and light in his world. So it's into this story that Jesus steps in and meets this man. And it becomes a story of contrast from violence to peace, from self-destructive behavior to abundant life, from debilitating fear to perfect love, from isolation to homecoming and community. This is a human life in the grip of evil, an evil spirit that's contrary to God's will. And this spirit meets the very presence of God. In our home, we have this, uh, I guess I'd call it a tradition, that when someone's been out, that when they come home, we stop what we're doing. Like if you're watching TV, you stop, you pause the TV. If you're on your computer screen, you look up. If you're on your phone, if you're reading a book, if you're making a meal, you stop and make eye contact at least with the person who just came in and say hi. Now, if these are guests, we actually go to the door and greet you and offer you something to drink and all that sort of thing. But for family members, we try to at least stop and say, hi, glad you're home. How was your day? So... One day, uh, my son came home, and at the moment that he came home, he was in high school, he drove himself in the driveway, I could see the lights. Uh, We were in, my husband and I, were in the last 10 minutes of a TV show that was the last episode of about six or seven seasons of a TV show that we had binged watched. You know, it was a really complex thing, and it's getting resolved year after year, only I don't watch them one at a time. I watch them all within like a two-week time period in winter when there's nothing better to do in the evening, and it's evening about 4.30 in the afternoon. You know, I look forward to like, we'll watch a couple of these shows and kind of time the whole thing out. Now, I, I don't want you to judge me. Truly, after about Easter time, this year I don't think I've even turned on my TV since it's April. As soon as the sun shines, I stop TV, and I also cut back on caffeine. So those are my confessions for good and for evil. So, however, this was in the dead of winter, and we had been watching, binge-watching this entire series, and my son Mason pulls in the driveway, he comes in the front door, expecting the normal greeting, and he'd had a rather big day, and instead what he heard was, Mason, just give us 10 minutes, would you please, just hang on, and he he said in a very accusatory way, you guys are addicted to TV, and it's like, oh, ouch, after all I've said and done for you. (laughs) Point being, it's like, come here, come closer. Here's, here's our habit, here's our rule, here's our practice in our house. We want to greet you, we want to welcome you, we want you, we want to look at you eye to eye and remember who you are. And on the other hand, now just hold back for a minute, we're watching a show. And that's sort of this 
push me, pull you, come here, don't come here, is what happens when Jesus meets this man. Because Jesus has just arrived in the boat. And I picture him like he's just put his foot on land, and here's this man right in front of him, kind of in his face. And he speaks to him, and he says at the top of his voice, which Chris read so well, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. It's like he's run to Jesus. There's something within him that has compelled him or kind of beckoned him or pulled him into the presence of Christ. But then once he's there, it's like, wait, don't, what do you want with me? Why are you here? It's like the evil itself is speaking. It seems to me that Jesus' presence, sort of the holiness of Jesus, drew the man to himself. Maybe some of us sitting here this morning are that way. Maybe today's a day where you're like, you know, I think it would be good for me to go to church. Like, I, I'm, I'm a little bit curious to know if, if, there, if this is real, this message about Jesus. Maybe church is a regular thing for you, and you're sort of thinking, ah, don't get me too into it. This, I don't really want to encounter Jesus. I just want to be in church. I just want a little piece of Jesus, not like actually meeting Jesus, a little bit like this however that goes. That's what this man was doing. And then Jesus looks at him, perhaps in a way that he had not seen anyone else eye to eye in a long time. And he speaks to the man with respect. He says, what's your name? And such an odd answer. My name is Legion, or in the message version, Mob. For many demons had gone into the man. And they begged him not to order them to go into the abyss, but rather, since there was a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside, could they go into the pigs instead? Okay, this is such a weird question. It's like knowing, okay, Jesus, you are all-powerful. You are all good. You're not going to want us dwelling in this man. But could you not send us into the abyss? Could you just send us into these pigs? And Jesus grants the request. What is up with that? Why does Jesus allow these demons to go into the pigs? I wonder if it's in order to show the nature of evil. Because when the spirits go into the, what's called a herd of pigs in Luke, it might be as many as 2,000 pigs. It's worse for the pigs than it was for the man. They are completely outside of themselves. They can't control themselves. And they go straight towards self-destruction. They run as a mass to the edge of a cliff and over it. And, and I picture just all these like sheep carcasses floating around. It, why? I think it does show us. Like, it was truly evil. It, it couldn't be contained. It couldn't choose life. So Jesus frees this man by sending the evil spirits, the demonic spirits, into the swine. Jesus grants this request that, that the evil would go into the pigs. The pigs destroy themselves. It's a visible demonstration of evil. And yet it is also the ultimate destruction of evil. Evil destroys itself. It's a victory of good over evil. Now, there's a puzzling reaction of the people. So this, this man is freed, and, and the pigs have drowned themselves. 
what kind of news did those herdsmen take back to town? Because this was happening out in the countryside. Did they say, 2,000 pigs have been destroyed. This is the destruction of private property. Who were these herdsmen? Were they Gentiles who could be around pigs and keep pigs? Or were they Jewish people who are not supposed to be around pigs and they would be the lowest of the low, someone who's herding pigs? It's, it's a very unclean. We don't know that. But they go back to town and they, and they say this has happened and people come rushing. It's like they want to see the disaster. Have you ever felt that temptation within yourself? Like you hear there's a fire and you want to get to go see where you can see it? I, I have. I want to see the flames. Or I've heard that when it's, there's a flood warning that there are some people who want to stay just long enough to see the water, which is usually a very bad choice because if you can actually see the water, it's very difficult to get out. These people come rushing from the city. I was trying to think of an analogy. It's like, have you ever been like car shopping over off 405? There's that big Kirkland car sales row. It'd be like all the cars in those three or four car lots suddenly turned themselves on, drove toward the lake, and drove themselves into the lake. Would you want to go see it? All the car carcasses floating in the water? Like, it's an attention-grabbing event. And I wonder if the news had simply been that man who was so disturbed, the man who had evil spirits in him, he's healthy now. Would people have wanted to go see him? Or would it have been like, oh, really? Hmm, what do you know? Is part of the way that Jesus gets their attention through this herd of pigs. So here's what happens. They go rushing out there. And, and when they get there, they're, they respond with fear. They even tell Jesus, we don't want you around here. Please leave. What are they afraid of? Are they afraid of this extreme loss of property? Are they afraid that evil really does exist in the world? Are they afraid that the world has suddenly become unpredictable? If spirits can be sent into pigs and pigs can run off a cliff, that's that, like, my mind can't hold that in. Are they afraid of the healed man? That he's too healthy to handle now? That it's convicting to see that he could come back into his own self? Is this too big of a contrast with their own sort of cultural comfort, perhaps addicted to sort of the status quo? Like those are people out there who live in cemeteries and that's not me. And now he looks just like them. I served a church over on the east side for many years, and one of the ministries that uh, Bellevue Presbyterian Church has is called Eastside Academy. And it's a school that meets in the church, and it's an alternative high school. And one of the challenges that we faced in supporting Eastside Academy was that students uh, often had problems with addiction, and that was part of why they weren't succeeding uh, in traditional school. So the, the church and the school often um, combined resources to help those students go to a residential treatment program and, and get themselves off of drugs or alcohol or uh, whatever kinds of problems that they were facing through a residential treatment. Then they would come back 
to school. Well, when they came back to school, one of the things that the students discovered was they came back to their same living situation. And their living situation influenced them in tempting ways and made it very hard for them to maintain their sobriety. So one of the hopes that we had, and we thought it was a 10-year vision, would be to provide housing for students, like maybe a boy's house and a girl's house, and, and staff to support um, those residences so that students, when they returned from treatment, would have somewhere to go. And it came to pass in about two years that suddenly God provided these three homes right in a row and money to provide uh, staff support for these homes. So we were able to start moving boys and girls into these homes, about six or so into each house. And I was the executive pastor, and so it was my honor to meet with the students and tell them that we were so excited that they were there and that there would be some household rules. Now, these household rules were things like there's a curfew and you have to do your own dishes. It didn't seem extreme to me. But as we presented the rules, there was a boy in the first uh, class, if you will, who stood up and started yelling at me and swearing that that was unacceptable and he wasn't going to live here if that's the way we were going to treat him. And I felt like, okay then don't. I mean, I, I, it's kind of like you need to stay within these rules. We'd all agreed. We'd prayed over them. They were written. They're posted in the house. And they, they really were, I felt, kind of parameters for healthy living. And so he and I sort of had words. We were toe-to-toe. I was actually kind of frightened by the exchange. But there were several of us there. And, and he, I said something like, do you just want to give it a try and, and just see? And he said, nope, and he walked out the door. About two weeks later, he came back. And he said, you know, I think I do want to try it, living within those rules. And he lasted for about two months, and he left again. And then he came back to school, and then he came back again. Over the period of about two years, he finally made his peace with, I'm going to live within these rules. He graduated from high school. He applied and got accepted to the University of Washington. He accepted the rules for housing situation with other Christians. He became a Christian at the University of Washington. And eventually, one day, he showed up in my office at church, all dressed up because he had just gotten his first job. I get teary talking about it. Because it felt to me like he was a kid who was kind of like this guy. He was trapped, he was isolated, and the more choices that he made, the more he became isolated, and it was kind of a mutual thing. The community said you need to live within these rules, and eventually he, he found himself longing to become the kind of person who could live within those rules. And I found myself looking at a young man who was dressed and in his right mind, if you will, like this guy. They walked up to this, these people who came out to see what was going on, they walked up and there was a man, remember he'd been naked, living in the tombs for years. And he's dressed and in his right mind. I almost picture him like khakis, button down, belt, clean cut. And there's like a, oh, like is this the same guy? How can this be? One of the books that I held up that I wanted to share with you um, is by Andy Crouch, and it's called Strong and Weak. And um, Crouch's main thesis is that strong and weak 
like live together. They're, they're held together in a paradox that it's not let us become strong, it's let us carry our weakness gracefully. So he describes what a flourishing human being is. He says this is the paradox of flourishing, that we need both. Flourishing is a way of answering this first great question. What are we meant to be? We are meant to flourish, not just to survive, but to thrive. Not just to exist, but to explore and expand. Gloria Dei Vivens Homo, says Irenaeus, back in the 300s. And it's translated this way. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. To love fully in these transitory lives on this fragile earth in such a way that we somehow participate in the glory of God, that would be flourishing. Is that what they saw when they walked up? This man who looked like he was so healthy, he was astoundingly healthy, he almost glowed with the glory of God. Is that what they feared? Is that what they withdrew from? Is that what they said, we can't handle that? Perhaps. So this is the puzzling reaction of the people. They're afraid of Jesus' power. Afraid that Jesus, who could calm a storm, can also calm and put a person back together again. It's too scary to think, is Jesus this God-man? Is Jesus the embodiment of good over evil? Can we even let that possibility in? So that's what they encountered. And Jesus also grants their request. They say, we don't want you here, and so he's going to get back in the boat. He's going to move on. And in that moment, the, the, the former struggling man, now healthy, comes to Jesus and, and says, I want to go with you. I, I want to be near you. It's like, they don't want you, but I want you. I want more of this. And Jesus sends him away. He says, no, I'm sending you home. What would it be like to be sent home? Home essentially to a home he never knew or hadn't known for a long, long time. I'm sending you back. I'm sending you into community. I'm sending you with these people who can't even believe that you are who you are. Go tell everyone what God has done for you. And friends, Jesus sends us too. He, he may be sending us somewhere we don't want to go. We, we don't get to say to God, hey, here's where I want to go. God gets to send us where he wants us to go. And we don't have to tell a story like this if it's not our story. All we have to do is tell the story God gave us. Maybe it's just tomorrow morning at your workplace or when you meet friends or take your kids to the park where you say, you know, I was in church yesterday. Really? Didn't know you went to church. Maybe that's all you have to say. Like, yeah, it, it helps me a little bit. There's a crazy woman preacher up there talking about this uh, demoniac story. You won't believe what's in the Bible. Whatever you want to say. So Jesus sends this disciple, new disciple, home in verse 38, 39. He's sent back to perhaps a family that has not been able to help him, to keep him safe. He's sent back to a town that was perhaps frightened of him. 
He sent back to tell of God's mercy, God's ultimate power. Jesus' motive to send him home is out of love. Love for the man that he'd be reunited with people. He's not going to be isolated anymore. And love for the people that they would get to hear this story and see this man restored. He's going home to a home he hasn't known for a long time, perhaps his whole adult life. I was helped in this idea of home um, by Richard Rohr, a book called Falling Upward. If you are over 35, I highly recommend Falling Upward. It's really about spirituality for the second half of life, which you know maybe is more than 70, but you get what I'm, where I'm headed. He says this, now he can go, a person can go home because he has come home to his true and full self. The days of outer performance or captivity are over. Now he can go home because he in fact come home, has already come home to his true and full self. We get this sort of sense that if heaven is sometime later, it's because it is first of all now. Jesus is both the alpha, the beginning, and the end. We read in Psalm 90 that with God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Holy Spirit calls us both backward to our real self and forward to our future self, our foundation and that which God is doing through us and building within us. It feels like grace from within, And at the same time, it comes from outside of us. The soul lives in such eternally deep time. We are both sent and drawn by the same force, which is what Christians mean when we talk about the beginning and the end, that both are present. So what does this then mean for us? In that parallel passage last week, Jesus calms the storm at sea. Now he calms the inner storm. Jesus is Lord of both our exterior circumstances and our interior selves. Through Christ, this inner peace is available to us. When we experience even violence, self-destructive behavior, terror, fear, death, even do you ever have those disturbing thoughts? Like what if I just drove my car into a pole? Or what if I just picked up this baby that's not mine and walked off with it? Or maybe some of you parents are thinking, go ahead, sometimes. (laughs) We have these disturbing thoughts. It's completely normal. It's part of what it means to be human. We, We can't really reconcile what we see and what we believe could be. And so sometimes our mind just kind of flips around trying to make sense of it all. Sometimes we get caught in that. And that's what I'm saying, get help. If, if you feel like you're, you're trapped in an inner circle within your mind, there's help. You're, you, the trap is not the end. Jesus wants to encounter each of us today, in wh- wherever we're at, whatever kind of struggle we're facing. For people who would like it, there's prayer at the end of service and more importantly now, we, I want you to know that you're not alone in carrying whatever burden you have. The church, the people of God want to walk with you. 
If you might be moved to take such a step, there's a class called Spiritual Journey that's starting at the end of this month, and it really is addressing our inner addictions and how to become free. Allow others to carry your burdens with you. Some of us might feel like this man. We've, we feel betrayed. We feel like others have given up on us. We feel broken. We haven't been able to shake the grip that addiction has on our lives. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be sex, money, image, perfectionism, bitterness, unforgiveness, depression. It doesn't matter. God is here for you. And Christ is here for you. And that's what Jesus proclaimed when he created, when he gave us this actual meal It's like he said, remember me whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup. Remember that I am for you, not against you. After giving thanks, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken. He became broken that we could be made whole. Today, all of our bread is gluten-free. So as the bread comes to you, if that's your need, you may know. Rest assured, God is for you in the gluten-free bread. (laughs) After supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and life and resurrection until he comes again. Friends, this is the feast of God for the people of God. May you encounter God in these moments. And if you want to write something down uh, to say, like, Jesus, this is the trap I'm in, and this is the freedom I'm looking for. Jesus desires to give you that freedom. Please pray with me. Gracious God, there are so many times in life when it does not feel well with our souls, when it does not feel like love is casting out fear. There are financial fears, there are vocational fears, there's relational fears. Lord, there's fears about our own mental health, about the mental health of those we love. There are times when we are so helpless that we feel hopeless. And yet, our God, we proclaim, as we see in this scripture, that you are the Alpha and Omega, that you have power over exterior storms, you have power over interior storms, that you desire wholeness and flourishing. And so, Lord Jesus, please use this time, use this gift of your very soul and brokenness for our sakes to build up your body in this place. Lord, may this be an encouragement. May this be a time of hope for each person gathered here and those watching online. Come, Lord Jesus, fill us up, we pray, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.